Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Excellent. Good morning. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast. The most professional show in New York. We're so pumped we have to play the theme song twice. How we are. Good morning, Melvin. Yes, welcome. So Anya's back on the panel. You didn't already know. It's just a learning experience. We're all learning. Mm. So, what's our, what's our news for the week? Oh, I've got one quick thing to say. Talk to me. So, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about having to flirt with a property oh. manager to get a place. So many people have asked me about that <laughs> since. Like, they're not trusting my behaviour. Really? Yeah. Well, good news is it paid off. So, at least... Woo! Yeah. Can we get some applause sound? Yeah. Sound effects applause. That's money. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Sometimes putting your mom's side... You guys have both gamed the rental market. Yeah. <laughs> I, I see what's happening. <laughs> Maybe you could turn it off. This oh, one. Yeah. Uh, None of us would have seen that. I did not even realize that was a button. No, we just need it to clap for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> well, you both got houses, so it was yeah, worthy yeah. of. Yeah. Isn't there anything more. Or is there is there anything more soul destroying than applying for houses? Yes, applying for jobs. Oh, uh, yeah. true, true. Yeah, yeah. Both, both. Yeah, but like in different ways. Totally. I was going to say going underwear shopping, but <laughs> uh, that jeans shopping for me. But yeah, mm. no, fair. Yeah, that's another bad feminist. Oh, I had to go to suit shopping the other day. Suit that shopping. felt yeah, that felt really incongruent with my <laughs> with my life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So there's clearly lots of things that can so the world is soul destroying. Mm. Yeah, but yes, applying for houses. Yeah, but also because, like, you know, if you have a name that's obviously not white Mm. or Anglo-sounding, like, you know, I've been told by landlords and agents through landlords that, um, you know, they prefer certain ethnicity. Um, and that's why I didn't get the house. And I guess that was more of an issue when I was still a student than now when I have a, a steady job. And, you know, you always keep thinking, like when you do an application, you're always like, oh, does my, you know, is my name going mm. to, to change anything? And it's like, well, I can't change my name. Yeah. And well, I made the... ridiculous. And yeah. nor should you have to. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I made the conscious decision to put my friend's name first on every application because she has a more Anglo-sounding name. Yeah. And, yeah, and maybe it, didn't, it wasn't a, an issue at all, but... But you don't know, hey, like, mm, it, yeah. the possibility that it could be and you, when you really want the place. Yeah. But it's so discriminatory. Like, my housemate trying to present as 
though she wasn't trans mm. to get a place and just, you know, playing all of that down. That's like, so you shouldn't have to do all of these things. It's really awful. Yeah. yeah. And just to get, like, housing, mm. like a basic right. Mm. Mm. And, like, I have money. I can pay. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I've never been late on my rent or mm. my bills or anything. But they're not looking for, you know, they're just looking for these very superficial mm. things that and these assumptions around who can afford to pay mm. for something and who mm. can't. Mm. Yeah. So, news headlines? Or you also had... All right. No worries. So, news for this week. Last week, Special Rapporteur Ben Emerson released a report containing evidence of widespread torture in Sri Lanka. He said that impunity is still the rule for those responsible for the routine and systemic use of torture, and countless individuals are the victims of gross miscarriages of justice resulting from the operation of the PTA, the Prevention of Terrorism Act. The Tamil community remains stigmatised and disenfranchised, while the truth of other minority communities is steadily being eroded. The Tamil Refugee Council is calling again on the Australian government to stop the deportation of asylum seekers and to grant protection visas to all Tamil asylum seekers. In Pakistan, former cricket star Imran Khan's party, the PTI, wins the election with 109 of 269 seats in the National Assembly and with rival party, the Pakistan Muslim League, winning 63 seats. Only 52% of citizens turned up to vote, down from the previous election. There have been accusations of fraud and manipulation concerning the victory, but Mr Khan has denied the allegations, arguing that polling has been the most transparent in the country's 71-year history. The EU election observer mission claims that there has been a lack of equal opportunity and systematic attempts to undermine the ruling party. And in Cambodia, former Khmer Rouge general... Hun Sen has been re-elected in a landslide victory with his party, the CPP, winning 80% of the votes. This result follows what has been described as a months-long brutal crackdown in the state against opposition members, some of whom have been imprisoned and others exiled, and also the media with the forced closure of all independent media. ASEAN Parliaments for Human Rights have stated that this election has taken place in a highly repressive political environment. However, Hun Sen maintains that he... Uh, has won in a free and fair election. Official results will not be announced until mid-August. Coroner Terry Ryan finds that Australia is responsible for the death of asylum seeker Amid Kazai on Manus Island. The ruling states that his death was caused by multiple, m- multiple errors and systemic flaws in the offshore healthcare system. This included not having the antibiotic to treat Hamid's tropical infection and delaying his transfer to a hospital for two days. The judgment, which is 140 pages long, recommends that doctors work, working on Manus should be responsible uh, for patient transfer and not the Australian Border Force or the Department of Home Affairs. It also recommends that all deaths of asylum seekers and refugees in offshore detention be subject to mandatory inquest and that they be treated as deaths in custody. Mm. That's awful. Yeah. And I just wanted to add one news item. Did I miss this when I was out of the room? No, please do. Yeah. Um, so people might have seen yesterday that a number of news outlets were reporting that um, a former Cricket Australia employee mm-hmm. named Angela Williamson um, is alleging that she was sacked from Cricket Australia because she campaigned for improved abortion rights in Tasmania and criticised the state government, so a Liberal government, on social media. Um, so I understand, and I'm I'm just trying to find the piece in the article, but... Um, 
I believe her health records were also leaked um, because the um, yeah the access to abortion thing was um, was I think quite personal to her from my understanding. So um, so there's a multiple layers there. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, that's. I don't even know where to start. You sack somebody because yeah. they tweet about abortion, and yeah. then yeah, mm-hmm. I, um, allegedly anyway. Yeah, allegedly. Mm. Well, I guess we'll see more about that story as mm. it unfolds, but that is quite disturbing. Yeah. yeah, and I think it ties into what we were talking about, about the My Health record. Yeah. Um, yeah, mm. if it's already insecure. Mm. Mm. I did see something about how, how that was in contrast with that um, cop in Queensland who... Oh, my goodness, yeah. Who so texted he, about... Yeah, um, who texted um, a man who was abusing his wife about... Or ex-wife about the ex-wife's whereabouts um, in order to intimidate her, mm. and and he still has his job. So, I mean, every every police officer in Australia still has their job. Mm. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. But yeah, exactly. It's um, yeah, it's really one of those things, isn't it? We and you know, we just have NADOC week, and then mm. we have the Trevor Noah debacle, and it's just like one step forward. How mm. many steps back? Yeah. I did want to mention that. I wanted to say good morning to everyone except those who support Trevor Noah. You're loving the good mornings too. <laughs> Loves it. But fair, yeah. Yeah. It's um and actually highly recommended listening. So if anybody doesn't know, Trevor Noah is an American comedian. He's an African American comedian who um this he was touring Australia or he's still coming. I think he's coming, yeah. Um and recently a video of him doing stand-up surfaced from a few years ago and he um said some really derogatory things about Aboriginal women which I'm not going to repeat here. Mm. Um, and so there has been really public outcry about it, but um, as per usual in this country, it's been led pretty much solely by Aboriginal women mm. themselves. Mm. Um, and a lot of people are defending his racism. Um, and there's a really great podcast. Um, it's on Radio National. It's Benjamin Law and Beverly Wang's show. I can't remember what it's called. It's like Stop Everything or mm. something like that. Anyway, Dr. Chelsea Bond and another Indigenous academic whose name escapes me, are on there talking about why it's so um, why this kind of joking mm. in quotation marks is so harmful, <clears throat> and kind of the what seems like low level um, verbal violence mm. is actually yeah it's indicative of a, of a lot of other and, things and it yeah. lays the foundation for state violence yeah um, mm. and medical violence and all of those things mm. so um, yeah if you haven't engaged with that um, issue mm. yeah that was awful. And then he tried to follow it up with a, an apology, oh. um, which was also in quotation marks, <laughs> alleged apology. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great so example says. of what not to say. Right. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. Shall we um, go to a song and just sort of sit with all of those heavy news items yes. that we've just spoken about? Sit with them. So I'm going to play a track by an artist called Jojo Abbott, who is a Ghanaian artist who expresses herself through music, film, photography, literature and performance art. And this track we're about to play is called Pilolo from her 2015 album FIFA Watto. And so that was... A song called P. Lolo by Jojo Abbott. Beautiful vocalist. Yeah. So 
We have the absolute pleasure of being joined in the studio right now by Thea Baker, who is a wellness coach for women, and she's also a phone support worker at WIRE, and that's where I had the pleasure <laughs> of meeting her. And just It always happens at WIRE that you meet people, and then suddenly you work out what they do in, you know, in their life, and it's just incredible. So a description of your job is wellness warrior for all things women, which I think is so fantastic. So lovely to see you. Thanks for coming in. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> so you used to work in the corporate world. What made you shift to this type of work? Mm, it was a, it's a funny transition. It's a real journey probably for probably since my children were born, actually. Um, I often say my life before children was all corporate human resources. That's what I used to do. And then I had my kids and life really changed for me um, in, a, in a number of fairly significant ways. Um, as a woman, I kind of changed my perspective of life in a big way. Um, and um, I just wanted to be able to spend some time with them when they were little in their formative years. But also... Within that was a real privilege to be able to stay at home with them. Um, but also I got completely lost in the process of becoming a mother. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I wanted. And I really disconnected from my body. And, um, you know, it didn't respond the way that it used to. It certainly didn't look the way that it used to. And nobody really has those conversations. Um, you have young women who go into motherhood and there's this dreamy kind of process that's going to happen and the baby is a little peanut and then it becomes a watermelon and then you have to have it out, you know, some which way or other. Um, but nobody kind of goes, by the way, there's a process that the body goes through and within that your psyche as well, I think. Um, so I got completely lost in, in myself and in who I was. And for me, um, Exercise was a way to find my way again. Um, physically, it helped me reconnect to my body, um, but it gave me time away from my kids. <laughs> I'm a swimmer, um, and uh, when you're face down in a swimming pool, nobody can get you. <laughs> and you're also a very good swimmer, by the way. I was seeing uh, on your website. You, you've held a record in Victoria for yeah. freestyle? Freestyle, it? 800 yeah. metres. Yeah, it was a while ago, um, yeah. but that was pre, pre a few other things, hip surgeries and, and other such. But... Yeah, that's how my uh, transition into the health and fitness and well-being industry kind yeah. of came about, was about helping other women reconnect to their bodies. You know, if I could do it for me, could I help other women find their way back to their mm. bodies? And then that got, in the last sort of eight years or so, much more complex. Mm. Um, because for me now, health and well-being is a really, really a four-dimensional process for me. It's about emotional physical, mental and spiritual health. And a woman needs all of those in balance, um, I think, for us to be truly well. Um, yeah. And it seems like something that we just don't talk about. We've touched <laughs> on that. We don't talk about what it's like post-pregnancy mm -hmm. and these changes that happen with your body and how women's bodies are often so devalued as well when it's like you've brought a human being into the mm -hmm. world. Yep. And the way that society might treat you or the way you, that you might think about yourself. Yep. Uh, it's, uh, it's a really complex thing for me. It's a physiological act, childbirth, uh, that becomes so incredibly medicalized most of the time. I had my babies in the UK, so it's really interesting for me working with women who have their children in Australia. The Australian health care system is, is quite different. Um, not good, bad, different, just different. Um, uh, but having conversations with women about their 
their informed consent around the processes of childbirth. I was at a birth trauma awareness uh, session literally two weeks ago around the use of forceps for delivery. So cesarean rates, for example, we want those down because everyone knows the risk of cesareans. But what they don't say is, by the way, to get a baby out in an emergency, if it's cesareans, the alternative is a forcep delivery. But nobody in that conversation says, by the way, these are like giant salad servers that go inside your vagina. And the process of pulling that baby out is not simple. Um, and, he, you know, that kind of conversation doesn't happen. Uh, talking, I spend my life with women who suffer um, pelvic floor dysfunction. So urinary incontinence, fecal incontinence, weeing yourself, pooing yourself when you don't want to. Um, pelvic organ prolapse so various parts of your pelvic organs falling through your vagina wall and in some cases protruding outside of your body that is not a conversation that people want to have so even with doctors do they explain that there's a possibility of these things they don't no it's not a it's not a there's a there's this expectation that you're just going to have a have a baby and the priority in that moment is to get that baby out safely and in some cases it's kind of like the carrier for that baby is secondary in the consideration. And that really, that really troubles me. Um, and women in the middle of labor, it's not a pretty process. And women are not thinking straight. They're not in a position necessarily to, to be fully informed. Uh, they're in a lot of pain. They're very scared. Um, and unless you can, it, it, for me, it goes back a few stages. You know, there's got to be better antenatal care um, with regards to infor- information. So a huge part of the work that I do is about education. It's about education. If I could get hold of women in their 20s, I've worked with teenage girls, explaining to them that this is your anatomy. This is wh- how your body works. And you only have one of them. So it's better that you work with it rather than against it. And that's a whole bunch of things, you know, whether that's around exercise, the kind of exercise we do, um, understanding how our anatomy works is not a conversation that is had. Um, I have a teenage daughter myself. I have a, a teenage stepdaughter as well. So experiencing it secondhand, what they're taught in schools these days, they're not given that kind of information. It's actually about don't have sex um, and don't get a sexually transmitted disease. It's not this is why you have a period and this is what you need to know about periods and this is what you need to know about what's normal. And It's so basic. Oh, It's yeah. really not rocket science. And I, I stripped it right back. Every woman that I work with for the first time has a conversation around their anatomy. <laughs> By the way, you have three holes and these are how they work. And this is how your, your core functions and know your core is not just your six-pack muscle in fact your pelvic floor is a really really important muscle in your body and as a as a personal trainer you don't even get taught about how that works um there's a whole bunch of specialist work that has to go on and what do you think in terms of the fact that this isn't discussed Mm -hmm. both in the medical field and also just in society Mm -hmm. how do you think this sort of stigma might impact people that do experience these sorts of issues after pregnancy yeah shame is a huge issue um we know that there aren't enough pelvic health physiotherapists out there to really connect with the amount of women who will suffer pelvic organ prolapse or pelvic floor dysfunction. And I, I really don't want to come on here and scare women, but it's a real silent epidemic. And I think the statistics are something like up to one in two of us are going to suffer some form of pelvic organ prolapse in our lives, whether that's related to pregnancy, childbirth, um, exercise we know that even people that don't have children can prolapse because of the kind of exercise that they're doing um and menopause so we're 
different to men. I spend a lot of time educating the women I work with, but also other health and fitness professionals about the fact that we're not mini men. Women have a different anatomical structure. Uh, there's a few design flaws in that. And, you know, there's this, this hole in the middle of the vaginal opening is, is, is gravity, unfortunately, assisted. And unless you know how to work with those muscles well, you can cause yourself a huge amount of damage or damage can be caused to you. So shame is a huge thing. The, the silence around it, it is not a conversation that's comfortably had. I often say to say that I feel like I'm taboo slaying all the time. You know, I, talk about periods and vaginas and in I talk about it at the, at the dinner table and my kids are so That's used great. to having those conversations I think that would be amazing to grow up as a kid and be able to talk about that stuff really mm. openly with your parents and not to be this thing that needs to be hidden or hush hushed or it's anything. yeah it, but even there that really came up close to me at home recently my daughter's um bless her thank goodness she won't be listening to the radio but she's had she's had her period now she started her period at 12 and she's only had two cycles but already she hides her pads up her sleeve you know what what is what is with that she goes from all girls school like all of them are going to go through this um why we don't hide yeah. toilet paper when we go to the bathroom yeah. so why it's a real it's, it's challenge like internalized yep. hey when you start to take those ideas in a patriarchal society mm-hmm. and go oh this is not okay yeah it's not okay to have this out in the open mm-hmm. this needs to be hidden yep it's dirty it's unclean yep. you know there's a whole bunch of of really misinformed stuff and that is because you know we're hysterical and within the medicalized system it's women's issues are not taken seriously consider things like endometriosis um, pelvic pain um, no that's nothing you're fine you're normal I've spoken to so many women who have to fight and spend a shed load of money getting access to the right kind of care for the right kind of diagnosis because they know something doesn't feel right but they're told time and time again no everything's fine and imagine the money that would be pumped Mm into these health issues if it was seasonal that experience right absolutely i've often said if some if a man's penis was broken in the same way that would have been a fix (laughs) many many years ago yeah (laughs) yeah and so i know that we spoke about this briefly a couple of weeks ago Mm. so are you also thinking in terms of the service that you provide um making it more trans inclusive as well and recognizing all all bodies that are capable of having children yeah absolutely it's a real uh, the work that i've been doing at wise really made me consider how this fits in because it is such a gendered space and on the one hand i don't want to um sort of water down the important work that I do for cis women because it's a really necessary um, service I think there are are a lot of women that need help and there are a lot of women that don't get the help that they need but um, there are for me I can see that the issues that those cis women are dealing with could only be magnified so much more intensely for people somewhere not identifying as cis. Um, So I've, yeah, I'm doing a lot of work in that space at the moment. I'm presenting in Melbourne at the Women's Health and Fitness uh, uh, Summit later this year on inclusivity and intersectionality in health and fitness. And again, in New Zealand later in the year, because I think that we are pretty shambolic yeah. in this space. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's, it's the same thing with why these services or organisations that have been previously exclusively for cis women mm-hmm. and then kind of expanding that and going, this isn't 
this isn't the only group that's affected by this and how do we reach these other people whilst also recognizing that you know not not changing not like being able to see both like, yes this is an issue that affects these women but it's also an issue that affects people in the yep. tra- trans community mm-hmm. let's hold those two things together and yep. make sure everyone is able, like everyone feels included in this discussion yeah for me it's an and it's not an or why does it have to be or um it's not yeah it's not one or the other the issues are similar different but the issues are still there yeah yeah and in terms of wellness and exercise, what are some examples of things people can do to work on their health if they have experienced mm. um, these sorts of issues? Mm. For me, I, I guess I see my work as educating women to be the experts in their bodies. You know, we know that they're, they're the experts in their lives, um, but oftentimes they don't have the knowledge and the information that they need to be able to then make informed choice around what kind of exercise to do. So, for example, yes, go lift weights, um, but do it with an awareness of the breath. Um, it, it, first of all, for me, it's about education. Second of all, it's asking questions. So if you are working in group fitness, if you're working with a personal trainer, ask them. If it doesn't feel right in your body, have the... Um, have the strength and the power in your you've got to protect it you've got to be the advocate for your body and if it doesn't feel right say so if the the trainer or the group fitness person is worth their their experience then they should have an alternative exercise for you you know don't don't just follow the herd and do it because you think you should it is not no pain no gain it's it's so much bigger than that and was it was it you who was talking about the woman on the biggest loser who had the child no, is it the Biggest Loser? There was that TV, oh, yeah. and and yeah. had the, had a child, and then got straight back into mm-hmm. exercise, and mm-hmm. kind of forced herself to yeah to get sort of back in in good health. Yeah, I often talk about the fact that women uh, childbirth is a contact sport. <laughs> you know, injuries that happen through giving birth are significant, and if it was a, a footy player with a a tear of a quad, the amount of energy that would go into that rehab is significant. Yeah. Uh, women need to recognise it. It's a recovery process and society saying you need to get back into your size, whatever genes, the second you've had your baby is just absolute nonsense. Um, And it needs to be a gradual recovery process. Otherwise, that's when I often see women having having issues. They may not prolapse during childbirth. They may not suffer issues at that point. But getting back into things when their body is still not recovered, then it all goes horribly wrong. So it's about recognizing what's going on with your body and Mm -hmm. also being empowered by that. Absolutely. And not thinking, you know, my body is ugly because of these changes. No, it's a beautiful act having a child. Um, Will your body be the same as it was before? No, but why would you want it to be? You know, your body changes every day and over the different stages of your life as a woman. You know, we're not static creatures. We're cycles within cycles within cycles. And um, that's something we should relish. We should cherish that rather than you know seeing it as a, ne- yeah. a negative Thea this is such an important topic <laughs> I just love talking to you just got the one last question how can people get in touch with you so oh. if this has affected them and they yep. want to get in like involved yep. with their health or whatever yep. um, uh, through my website theabaker.com.au I'm also on Facebook uh, Thea Baker Wellness um, Instagram all those kind of things I do yes I do a lot of hands on work um, and I have a studio in uh, Croydon in the outer eastern suburbs but I do work remotely with a lot of people so I have clients actually in the UK in New Zealand in China because yeah this is a, a wow. conversation to have yeah, yeah. fantastic thank <laughs> you so much my pleasure thank you <laughs> And I'm Mario. And we're Chronically Chronically Chilled. A program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. 
Listen to Chronically Chilled the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. ECR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. And we're back at Tuesday Breakfast at 3CR. We're going to go to a track now by LMA. This song is called Table for One. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. You're here with myself, Lauren, and George and Anya. And that was Ella May. I'm so impressed with your newfound love for <laughs> my music. Yeah. I was thinking <laughs> I know, the other day so that it took quite a long time. I was really resistant mm. to that. I don't know what genre is it, like hip-hop and R&B yeah. and just modern contemporary music. I was so resistant my entire life. Then I started living with Lauren mm. But I was still Drake. hanging on. <laughs> you were. I was still hanging on, on, and then the last straw was coming here and having all three of you be really into this music. There was no... Once you're in that space... Do you know what? No I think Lauren it. Hill was your gateway drug. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's 100% true. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to common answer? Yeah, sure. So... So the following news... Uh, well, common announcement, I suppose, concerns child abuse. It will go for about a minute if you want to turn... 
TrueNapt. So a stat that's been spoken about a lot at 3CR, that 100% of incarcerated children in the Northern Territory are Aboriginal, um, but there's also some other figures. As of May 24th, 2018, in Alice Springs Youth Detention Centre, 95% of child prisoners were not convicted. And this prison is at 270% over capacity. It is in the top 10 of overcrowded prisons globally. In May this year, against Royal Commission findings, Northern Territory Police dropped all investigations into prison guards relating to abuse exposed by the Four Corners report two years ago. Alice Springs families, residents and supporters continue to demand justice two years since the Four Corners report. A meeting is taking place in Alice Springs tomorrow where the strong grandmothers of the central desert region and supporters will be speaking. And so hopefully we will hear a little bit more about that meeting next week. Mm. But those figures are really staggering. That's awful. Mm. So it was 95% with no... 95% of child prisoners were not convicted. Mm, Yeah. So they're on remand or... Yeah, I guess that's something we could look into a bit more what's going on there but that's Mm. really high Mm. it's just appalling i don't yeah and i don't even know how you would begin to change this such a deep-seated attitude it it Mm. seems like in the northern territory especially yeah um i might just quickly jump in and just say that if that um if that raised any issues for you um, around the child abuse sort of stuff you could give casa a call on 1-800-806-292 that's one eight hundred eight zero six two nine two. They're friendly for any um, any gender and any age, so give them a call. Thanks, Lauren. So a couple of other community announcements. Baldwin 2.0 is a night of spoken word and music out west, raising vital funds for the Margaret Tucker Indigenous Refuge. Based in Fairfield, the Margaret Tucker Indigenous Refuge is managed and staffed by Aboriginal women and elders and is committed to preserving Aboriginal communities as their own source of healing and strength. They advocate for the rights of young Aboriginal women in the areas of health, education, employment and training. And they also offer emergency housing for people who are homeless and who have children. This event is a safe space for people of colour and members of the LGBTQIA plus community. It will be held on the 23rd of September at 7pm. You can search Baldwin 2.0 on Facebook for more details and tickets and they are also looking for artists to perform so you can get in touch with Aretha Brown if you would like to perform there. Mm. Award-winning author Anita Heiss will be speaking about her new book Growing Up Australia in Australia uh, sorry Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia on Thursday the 30th of August. Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia showcases a mixture of high-profile identities, well-known authors and newly discovered writers of all ages sharing their childhood stories of family, courage and belonging. The event will be held at the Newport Community Hub from 7 to 8pm on August 30th. It's a free event, but registration is required. Melbourne says no to racism. Standing up to the racist law and order agenda. Join community members, legal experts and Greens Greens MPs at this community forum on how we can stop the attacks on the South Sudanese and African Australian communities. So that's being held on the 9th of August from 6.30 to 8.15pm at Melbourne's Multicultural Hub. 
Say no to sexism. A counter-protest to March for Men will be held on August 25th from 1 to 4 p.m. at Federation Square. March for Men? Yes. <laughs> Why? Why is anyone March for Men? I wish everyone could see Anya's oh, face right now. Make this up. Yeah, oh, I think I saw some. You had like the event as well. I think did you? Yeah, I'm going. Yeah, I'll be there. <laughs> yeah, not mm. much for men. The other, yeah. My God. <laughs> yes. Oh, this is so hard done by. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're as shocked <laughs> as we are, um, so. I mean, I guess you can kind of guess where it's going. The March for Men gives a platform to racists, sexists and misogynists to continue pushing for harmful rhetoric about the feminist movement and it aims and its aims to achieve gender equality. <laughs> so that's on August 25th from 1 to 4 p.m. Mm. Yes. That's the most ironic thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <sighs> gross. <laughs> All right, one more event. So this is a discussion about the Nauru files in Australia's offshore detention policies um, as part of the All We Can't See Illustrating the Nauru Files art exhibition. It's on the 2nd of August from 5 to 7 p.m. at 45 downstairs. Oh, that's a really cool place mm. in Melbourne. Um, and did I already give the date for that? Yes. Cool. So that's Ooh. it. I might just jump yes. in. There's one more um, event that, uh, we would like to highlight. It's hosted by the Abolitionist and Transformative Justice Centre. Uh, it's a snap action um, on the 2nd of August, so that's this Thursday morning at 8am, meeting at Flinders Street and Elizabeth Street on the corner there. Um, so it's a snap action against youth incarceration, and it's a protest against the Prisons 2018 Conference, which is sponsored by prison industry corporations such as Broad Spectrum. The protesters plan to call for an end to youth imprisonment and hand out information to the public about a planned um, new prison for young people. So um, get along there if that's your thing. And I'm hoping to try and get along and do some recording. So even if you can't oh, make great. it, um, yes. hopefully we can play some stuff next week. Um, hopefully the Red Cross will let me move my plus donation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And now we are joined on the line by Natalie Ironfield, who I'm very excited to have with us. She's a proud Darug woman who's been living in Nam since 2014. Natalie is a prison abolitionist and works as an educator and researcher at the University of Melbourne. And she's passionate about highlighting the impact of incarceration on the health and well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander individuals, families and communities, and advocates for alternatives to punishment-based forms of justice. Um, basically, really our kind of woman. Good morning, Natalie. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. How are you? Look, I'm a little bit tired. Oh, I feel that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Got um, up pretty early this morning. Oh, sorry. Well, thank you for being with us. Um, I've been really excited um, about speaking to you. I think you got my very excited email after the um, Decolonizing NGO Spaces panel that I saw you speak on. Um, and since then, I've really been thinking a lot about what you were talking about. And I was wondering if we could just jump right into this. Um, yeah, you like you work at a, at a university, obviously. So um, it's a pretty established sort of traditional universe um, institution space. And so I wondered, um, with all of your political beliefs and now your your life experience as well, how can you see um, that? these institutions can do better at not reinforcing colonialism um, and those sorts of ideas in their operation? 
Yeah, so it's obviously a really huge question. Um, yes. <laughs> probably write a PhD on. But I guess I think it's kind of tricky to even answer because these institutions were literally built upon colonialism, white supremacy um, and Indigenous dispossession and have played such a huge role in the colonial project. So take, for example, Melbourne University where I work something like nine of the 17 founders of the Eugenics Society in Victoria were vice chancellors, deans or heads of school oh at universities in Melbourne. Yeah. Mm. So the university was literally a hotspot for eugenics mm. in the 20th century. Um, and obviously the eugenics movement played a huge, huge role um, in the colonial project here in Australia. So I guess in that sense, I think a good starting point for universities is to actually own this and start talking about it rather than just trying to perpetually sleep it under the rug. Mm. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with Melbourne Uni, but there's a huge campaign, I guess it's still kind of ongoing, but to rename a lot of buildings Mm -hmm. that were named after um, some of these people. And they renamed the first one last year. Um, who was named after a guy called Richard Berry, who was um, a leading eugenicist. Mm. However, when they did that, they changed the building names in the middle of the night um, and didn't have any publicity about why they were even doing that. So unless you even know who Richard Berry is, Mm. this actually isn't really a helpful process. So I think in that sense... um, Rather than just trying universities, I feel like they kind of try to pretend like this didn't happen. They actually need to own their history. Mm. Um, I also think some of the most transformative work that happens at universities happens in classrooms. Um, So one of the most powerful ways to make change in this space, I think, is to actually have, like if we look at Indigenous studies, have Indigenous educators teaching Indigenous subjects. Yep. And this doesn't really happen a lot at the moment, um, which I think is a huge issue. Really? So who's teaching the subjects? Um, I mean, there's some subjects that are taught by Indigenous educators, but a lot of them are taught by non-Indigenous people, mm. predominantly like white educators, um, which is a huge issue. Like, if we can't even get Indigenous educators into these spaces, like that seems like a pretty... Mm. The bar's set low, you know. Absolutely. And how is that not prioritised? Yeah, I guess it's hard, like, in these places that are built on, you know, you have to have, like, they'll create rules that make them really inaccessible. So, like, you need a PhD to teach a subject. Mm. But obviously people from certain um, backgrounds getting a PhD is a lot harder because they haven't always had access to education, like... University is a space where we haven't always been welcome. Absolutely. And still trying to make space mm. in those institutions. So it's sort of, it's about changing mentality in terms of, I guess, like structure and then also accountability. And so owning the past and changing practice moving forward. Um, yeah. Yeah. And like, I think to be honest, the amount of reform that we can do in these institutions is somewhat limited because 
of how universities were founded upon white supremacy and colonialism. Mm. So it's literally built into the operation. So I don't know how much energy we should mm. put into that reform agenda. Yeah, that's I mean. it's um that's a question I grapple with a lot. You know, how how much how much energy should you take pushing to change something before you just think, you know, this is not worth changing anymore. We should just start something new or, you know, tear it down and begin again or whatever. Um, and I guess that's, do you have more thoughts on that? So you're obviously somebody with, um, I guess, you know, radical ideas, abolitionist ideas, um, working inside a fairly non-radical institution um, what are your thoughts on that, working within it, and, and what do you see your role and responsibilities there? As well, obviously you have a job, but you know, in terms of broader. <laughs> yeah. So, I finished my masters in public health last year, and then thinking about um, undertaking a PhD next year. Um, and so, this is actually something that I've been grappling with a lot, trying to figure out what my purpose in this process would be. Um, and who I would need to be accountable to if I do start a PhD next year. And, yeah, it was kind of, like, it was a couple of months ago I had this moment, like, broadly I want to do my PhD in the area of prison abolition. Um, And I just had this thought. I was like, oh, my God, I want to do my PhD on prison abolition, but am I trying to reform the academy? Like... (laughs) Oh, God. <laughs> this, this seems hugely ironic. Um, but, yeah, I guess I don't actually see my role as trying to reform the academy. Mm. And I think if we look, you know, historically and contemporarily, the knowledge that has been produced in these institutions has been used against mm. us and our communities. Um, and in that sense, academic institutions are actually a really critical site for resistance. So um, I'm not sure if you've read it. Chelsea Bond wrote this really excellent piece um, recently for Indigenous X titled The Irony of the Aboriginal Academic Mm. um, and spoke about how as Aboriginal academics we can use our academic skills as weapons to resist and fight back against the knowledge that is produced about us in these places. So I guess that's kind of how I see my role. Um, And then in terms of responsibility, I think, like, Aboriginal people are obviously one of the most researched populations um, in the entire world. But even though we're so researched, that research is never accessible to communities. Mm. So I kind of see my role, if I do undertake research in this space, I need to make that research accessible um, to the people that are directly impacted by the work that I'm doing. Um, So, yeah, translating that work into accessible formats. And again, I think um, Chelsea Bond is someone who's doing a really, really excellent job of that Mm. right now. Yeah, we were just chatting about her in terms of the um, her... Trevor Noah commentary um yeah she's Mm. she's fantastic and it is that um she does manage to take quite critical commentary um and high level sort of theoretical arguments and bring them to the masses I guess which make them really accessible and understandable 
Um, yeah, and I think that's so important. Mm, absolutely. And I think that's definitely something that, um, it, you know, it's absolutely crucial that all academics have that sort of mentality, I think, more and more, because you're right, This all all of this research is about a population who is just being talked about but isn't being mm-hmm. worked with. So, <clears throat> mm. um, yeah. And so... You've mentioned a few times, obviously, um, your abolitionist views, which is something um, that we sort of touch on a bit on 3CR, but how did you get to this point? What does it mean to you and, I guess, why Yeah, why do you believe in it? Yeah, so um, when I was doing my master's, I guess I started learning more about the impact um, of prison on Aboriginal people, families and communities from a health health perspective. Um, and I also started volunteering in a program that I had at Port Phillip Prison, which was like a cultural support program for Aboriginal men. Um, and yeah, I guess both through going to that institution every week and also the work that I was doing at uni and the reading that I was doing outside of uni, um, I began to realise pretty quickly that um, prison reform was only going to do so much. And I think, like, if we look back on the function of prisons in the Australian colonial project, like, prisons were literally used to remove Aboriginal people from land and to segregate them from white society. Mm. So, you know, they were founded upon white supremacy and oppression of Indigenous people. And if we look at the contemporary prison system, it's pretty much doing exactly exactly the same thing. So I think it's pretty safe to say that prisons are kind of functioning exactly as they're intended to. Mm. Um, because you can't fix a system that isn't broken and because there's such a maintenance in this system. Um, that's kind of how I got to the point of seeing abolition as kind of the only sensible option. Mm. Um, And, yeah, I don't really think we're going to see any real meaningful positive change in that space um, until we fundamentally start doing things differently and Mm. start imagining other ways of existing beyond, like, that colonial system that has been imposed upon us. Yeah, I think a really uh, listening to you speak today and in the last couple of weeks, I think an examination of the white supremacy inherent in our institutions, in our biggest institutions, is really, really necessary because they're just, like you say, they're reproducing this. Um, well, they were founded in it and it's just being reproduced every day. So mm, Yeah, um, exactly. Um, we do have to wrap it up, but just really quickly, um, if people want to learn more about what we've been talking about today, um, I guess abolition in particular, do you have any recommendations like a book where they can start or particular writers that you enjoy or anything like that? Yeah, so in terms of abolition stuff, um, I guess obviously Angela Davis's Our Prisons of Police mm-hmm. um, is obviously an excellent starting point. That book is quite academic though and maybe isn't all that accessible. Um, I did stumble across this excellent reading group, um, reading list on um, this conference website for the 2018 
International Conference on Penal Abolition website. Um, and that has like kind of academic stuff and also a lot of kind of more like just article stuff and it takes you through like different weeks. Um, so there's heaps of resources there. And also I really love this podcast called Beyond Prison. Mm, um, yeah. Have you heard that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. So made in the, made in the States, um, and it's pretty accessible, I would say. And they obviously interview like lots of amazing humans who are doing really great work in the abolitionist space. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'll pop some of those links up on our Facebook page so people can get to reading and listening. Um, yeah, and thank you very much for joining us this morning. No worries. Thanks for having me. Thanks. So that was Natalie Ironfield um, from Melbourne University. Well, not representing Melbourne University, but she is a researcher there. And, oh, we have a song. Yes. What is it? Do you know Ama Lou? No. Um, has been endorsed by Drake. Well, That's the <laughs> say no more. <laughs> Finally, you made the big time when you've been endorsed by Drake. <laughs> uh, and this track is from the album DDD from this year. It's called Tried Up. And that was Amalu with a song called Tried Up. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Anya, George and Lauren. Um, so there's been a lot of news and noise about prisons lately and we've been talking about it quite a bit on the show today as well. <clears throat> so from the Queensland government's announcement about opening a new private women's prison to be run by Serco, which is awful on so many levels, and we unpacked that a little bit about a fortnight ago with Debbie Kilroy from Sisters Inside, um, to the news that, you know, the proportion of Aboriginal kids in the Northern Territory juvenile justice centres is a hundred percent. So I think it's pretty uncontroversial to say that the prison system, as it is now, is not working. Um, so, you know, is is that seriously time to start imagining a world without prisons then? Yes. <laughs> Applause. <laughs> um, so joining us now to share her thoughts about that is the amazing Vicky Lee Roach, a proud UN woman, activist, writer, poet, an all-around champion. And for all of you law nerds out there, I'm looking at you, Lauren, um, look up Roach and Electoral Commission. In 2007, Vicky was instrumental in a high court challenge that struck out legislation banning prisoners who were serving three years or less from voting. So very exciting case, um, worth the read. And I'm so, so, so excited and humbled to speak to her. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Vicky. Thank you, Anya. Um, Let's start with the big questions. Why not? Um, what are your thoughts on, on prison abolition? Do you think it will ever well, become a reality? Well, I hope so. I'd, I'd like to see that. Mm. Um, and it, it's been shown in other countries that it's possible. Uh, so I don't see why not. Mm. I, <laughs> although having said that, I don't expect to see it in my lifetime. Mm. Well, <laughs> one can hope. <laughs> um, I guess then, you know, if if we abolish prisons, what are the the alternatives? What do you think we could be doing instead? 
Well, I think we have to um, look at other models and, and we have to change the way we think about people who break the social compact. Mm. Um, we have to actually think about the kind of laws we have mm. that criminalise people and um, send them to jail to begin with. Mm. Um, but we have to think about people who break the social compact in a different way. We, we have to stop thinking of them as... Um, undesirables and that we have to lock them away and protect society from them. Mm. Because the, the, the fact is, 99% of people in jail don't necessarily need to be there. Mm. We're not protecting society from anything. And besides, people get out. Mm. They get out all the time. Um, and they go back in, which is what prison does. Um, it creates its own customers. <coughs> but we have to start thinking about crime and and the punishment of crime in a different way. We have to stop thinking of it as crime at all. In Norway, they, um, if a person does something wrong, breaks into a house, steals something, takes drugs, whatever, um, they don't say you're a criminal and lock you up. They say, what? how has society failed you that you need to do these things? You know, what can we do to make your life right so that you don't want to harm anyone else in society? Mm. And, and I, I believe that that's the way we should look at things. Mm. So it's sort of reimagining what the word crime, yeah. Sorry. So it's sort of reimagining what the word crime even means. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And um, so in terms of the prisons as they are now, um, First Nations people are disproportionately represented in prisons, um, and I'm just wondering about what you think about. Um, what kind of structural and institutional change, be it in the education system, government and or communities, should we be aiming to achieve to change this? Well, government should stay out of our business altogether. Mm, yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> Take that. Seeing as they won't, I guess we have to work with that. Mm. Um, and, look, the, the biggest driver behind anything um, for First Nations people as well as everyone else is poverty. Mm. And, and governments create poverty. You know, no, nobody wants to live in poverty. It's, um, well, talking about reimagining crime, mm. we, we're currently reimagining crime to include the crime of being poor. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think poverty is the main driver behind um, anybody going to prison or being in a, in a position where they can be easily criminalised. Uh, look, the, mm. the um, doctor that's been giving people cannabis oil, mm. he just served 12 weeks in prison on bail. Uh, waiting for bail. Mm. He didn't need to be there. You know, look, mm. people are, uh, well, that's not anything to do with poverty, but um, his um, oil is far less expensive than what the government's providing. Um, that, that costs people about 1500 bucks a month. Mm. So they're going to, to other people, other ways of getting healing oil. So government's Government's not particularly helpful in any way 
in society. Um, yeah, it should probably just butt out of everybody's <laughs> lives. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the um, yeah. education system? Well, I don't have a lot of faith in the education system anyway. Mm-hmm. As, um, yeah, being stripped of so much funding and loaded with so much bureaucracy, where do they ever get the time to teach the kids anything? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I call it indoctrination, which it basically is. So, yeah, the whole education system needs to be... Um, mm-hmm. more structured around what kind of world we're, we're facing, um, mm-hmm. which, is, which is currently not. Look, they're only just starting to, to teach kids the true history of Australia. Look, once upon a time you had the the white settlers taming the noble savage and we're, we're actually starting to teach a bit beyond that. But it's still not appropriate for First Nations kids. Um, we're, we try and slot First Nations kids into a white, centred education system and uh, I don't think it works. Mm-hmm. And having access to that education to begin with. Um, all schools are not created equal. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Mm. Mm. So I guess reimagining prisons and the criminal justice system is so much wider than just that. It starts from, um, from the community education, government, there's just so many interrelated factors um, connected oh, to it. Mm. Mm. Housing, education, um, income, and it's not enough to, to say that like, we've got this idiot government screaming jobs and growth and the only jobs they're creating are, are people in prison. Mm. <laughs> Funnily enough, you're, you're classified as employed. You go off unemployment benefits and you classified as employed when you're in prison. Um, all those people on work for the dole, mm-hmm. um, all the older people who are forced to volunteer for 20 hours a week or, or something like that, um, mm-hmm. that's, that's bullshit jobs that the government says they've created. We don't need jobs. People just need an income. Mm-hmm. You know, what's the point of doing of picking up papers or, um, you know, digging holes for no reason just mm. to say you're employed. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. We're, we have to start talking about a universal basic income. Mm. It's the only way to, to ensure that everybody has, has the same access to the necessities of life. Mm. which we currently don't. Um, Vicky, hi, it's Lauren here, another um, broadcaster. I was reading about um, a prison, a maximum security prison in New Zealand this week, which um, which is sort of being slated as like a, and I loathe using this term, a humane prison. Um, so it's, you know, there's lots of lots of grass and there's animals and gardening and all of these kinds of, you know, these ideas of trying to make it more... Um, yeah, humane is the term they keep using. And I wanted your thoughts on this idea of um, should we be 
while we're stuck with prisons, should we be reforming them to try and make justice more humane or transformative or those sorts of things? Like, do you think that's a reasonable alternative or should we just be, you know, tearing them all down? What's your vibe there? Well, we should be just tearing them all down. <laughs> um, and is there... That. Yeah, sorry. Failing that, they, they need to be um, healing environments, which is impossible um, under a correction system. Mm. And while you have corrections officers um, sort of running that environment, um, the, the way I saw it when I was actually in prison was piss all these screws off. They can guard the perimeter or whatever mm. and just fill the jail with um, yoga teachers, teachers, um, you know, people doing Reiki, you know, just healing environment, mm-hmm. a totally healing environment. Um, people working with women to find them housing, um, you know, all, all, all those kind of things. It needs to be healing. What's the point in punishing people? Mm. Sorry, that was a dog. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, I think, yeah, mm. um, and I think we've got to wrap up soon, Mickey, but I just have one final question because you, you talked a little bit about, um, women in prisons, um, given that we've just celebrated, um, NADOC week where the theme is, you know, because of her weekend, there's a lot of, um, uh, conversations about how, how women, um, you know, Indigenous women are being treated at the moment. What are your thoughts about how, um, First Nations women are being supported or not supported in prison currently and subsequently out of prison? Well, look, there's a a lot of will in the community um, to support women in prison, particularly Aboriginal women in prison, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's difficult to access. Prison's a very closed, secretive environment, and it's difficult for the community to gain access Mm -hmm. to to the women in prison. Um, Mm -hmm. So if that were made easier... um, when I was inside in Victoria, we, we had um, community come in outside, from outside, and um, run a program, a cultural immersion program, mm. and it was it was fantastic. For, for the entire day, you you spent the entire day with these women and other Aboriginal women doing cultural things, um, and that lasted for like a whole week. Mm. It was almost not like not being in prison for that time, and it. it it was excellent. If, if the whole jail could have been like that, mm. um, yeah. Mm. Uh, so, so I think there's a lot of will mm. to support women in prison, but not from the Department of Corrections. I think Department of Corrections are obstructive mm. when it comes to allowing community in. Mm. You'd think they'd, they'd learn by now, but it's still an ongoing struggle. Yeah, and, and the, the struggle is because of their mindset. Mm. Um, they, they see community mm. as uh, do-gooders, mm. that we're in prison to be punished and why should anyone come in and relieve our punishment? Mm. Mm. Yeah, lots, lots to think about, um, about, about this issue. Um, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. But thank you so much for joining us, Vicky. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thank you. 
The 2018 Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on the 11th of August at the Brunswick Town Hall. Stalls, books, projects and organisations fighting for a better world, here and abroad. Come for the stalls, stay for the workshops. Topics ranging from Indigenous struggles and decolonisation, climate change, anti-racism, unions, feminism, refugees, Anarchy 101 and so much more. Interested in a stall? Email us on info at amelbournebookfair.org. That's info at amelbournebookfair.org. Or message us on our Facebook page, Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair 2018, a 3CR supporter. And we're back at 3CR. Just full disclosure that technical difficulty that we had before the last uh, track was played was actually my fault, and I wasn't even panelling. I didn't plug the thingy into the phone. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> the thingy. What's it called? Ogs code? Anyway, so there's so many things that could go wrong, <laughs> even if you're not the one pulling all the strings. Mm-hmm. Um, just sort of, I guess, I thought it would be good to play Mojo Juju. Yeah. Yes. Um, We've played this before, this track, N- Native Tongue. It's a great song. Mojo Juju's album is coming out in August. I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. But just for now, we've got this track to listen to. Native Tongue. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. <laughs> Bit of Erica Badu slipped in there. No, we are on fire <laughs> this morning. Nothing wrong it's with not it. even my fault. <laughs> okay, you are so yeah, gleeful. Yeah. <laughs> so you're back on Tuesday breakfast, um, and we just wanted to chat quickly before we let you all go about La Chole, Um and I don't know, maybe. How are you guys feeling about this? Yeah, is there anything that you wanted to say? Where do you begin? It's, yeah. It's awful. It's absolutely awful. Just the, the kind of rhetoric about, you know, she's... It's barely been, what, two weeks? Mm. And just the sort of stories that have built around her passing and how that's been used in, you know, as like... What's the term? Dog whistling? Is that yeah, what it's called? Yeah. Political, mm. political gain. and mm. Absolutely awful when you contrast that to the death of um, Eurydice mm. and how the stories are just so similar in so many ways, but also the way they've been portrayed by the media, you know, to further their, their, <coughs> their own agenda. Mm. Yeah, awful. It's, I've been thinking about how... You know, maybe when you mistrust the media, the mainstream media, like I suppose we do, um, you can kind of, well, personally, I feel like you can almost fail to see how significant an impact they have on people's behavior. Because, you know, when we read the Herald Sun or something, we might be just dismissive and mistrustful. But I think the lack of outpouring of public 
support for Larchol's family mm. and public grief um, has really hit home to me just how powerful, um, yeah, it sort of reminded me how powerful this media is and sort of in the wake of the Nine Fairfax merger. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's a really timely and awful reminder. Um, yeah. And her family, I just, yeah, um, obviously we stand shoulder to shoulder with her family, but um, I can't imagine what they're going through. Yeah, I guess it's a sort of an important time to be thinking about ethics in the media and what's appropriate mm. in terms of the way that you talk about you know, someone when they've died and that a lot of people in the media aren't really holding up themselves up to these standards and mm. these codes of ethics. And you know, with the merger with ABC, sorry, mm. with Fairfax... Um, they will try and get so it's channel channel nine channel nine mm. um to 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 agree to their ethics, mm. which will be interesting to see if they actually do that and will that change the way that that they report things. But, but a lot of these a lot of these companies are not actually following these rules no. at all. But what so this is actually I hadn't thought to ask you this, but this is useful that you are a media person. <laughs> um, what are the ethics around so? You know, that, that old, the whole thing of if it's, somebody says it's raining and somebody says it's dry, it's your responsibility to look outside and see whether it's raining or dry. And then you report that. Mm. So if a woman is killed and politicians are all bleating about African gangs, what is your responsibility there? What are you supposed yeah. to report? So, I mean, a lot of um, news companies are like a part of the MEAA, which, the, which is the media um, Entertainment Arts Alliance, and they have a code of ethics which states about you know 14 different principles that you're meant to follow. Mm. And if you don't follow them, you can be fined. You have to answer to this alliance, basically. Mm. Mm. And one of the really important things in that is that you, you're not supposed to talk about the ethnicity of a person in a news story. Mm. It's actually unethical to do that. To say like, wow, uh, an Aboriginal person was sent to jail for this reason. But the way they, they get around it is by quoting a police person mm. who mentions oh. that fact. But in terms of reporting, you know, I think that they do have an obligation to present the story factually. Mm. And they clearly aren't doing that. These sorts of issues happen all the time when uh, organisations jump to conclusions before you know, actually knowing the full mm. story. And it is hugely problematic and very unethical. Absolutely. But I guess this is probably a topic for next week. Let's bring it back next yep. <laughs> week because I'd really love to learn more. Yeah. Um, we are well and truly out of time, but thank you so much to all of our guests yes. for today. Thank you, George, for all the amazing songs. <laughs> thank you, Anya, for not actually screwing up the panelists <laughs> at all. And next Too up is soon. Accent of Women.